right. Well, we are continuing today with our Sunday School series on the serpent and the serpent slayer. We've covered the first couple of chapters of the book already, and today we'll be in chapter three. And it's exciting for me to have the opportunity, finally, this is my first chance to get up here and uh, uh, lead one of the discussions on uh, the book, but I've been enjoying the studies very much so far, and I hope you have as well. Um, it's, you know, particularly, I've appreciated the way that the author, Andrew Nassily, or Nassili, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his name, but um, I appreciate the way that he's, uh, you know, shown us how to view the story of the gospel through the lens of this story of a battle between good and evil, or as he's, you know, titled the book, The Serpent and The Serpent Slayer. You know, if someone were to ask you what book you're reading and you were to tell them The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, they probably wouldn't naturally think that you're talking about a book on biblical theology. They'd probably think something more along the lines of a fairy tale or a, you know, one of those legendary stories like George and the Dragon, you know, like we talked about, Pastor Fry talked about some examples in the intro uh, to the book. But... Um, you know, they'd probably envision something that involves a, you know, a hero, a valiant knight or prince who's fighting against the forces of evil represented by, you know, a massive serpent or, or dragon that's threatening to destroy. And then you would probably have, you know, a third party, a, you know, um, the people who need to be saved. It might be the kingdom if it's a prince fighting against the dragon, or it could be uh, you know, Nasli gives us an example, a damsel in distress could be uh, a princess that needs to be saved, something along those lines. And we all can think of examples because those stories have uh, been passed down, you know, from generation to generation. We've seen them remade into movies over time. Uh, it's not hard for us to, to picture examples that you could follow. And what I really love is that Nasli has pointed out that you know, in the book, that these stories resonate with us so deeply, and they uh, continue to capture our imagination because they borrow from the greatest story ever told, and that is the story of Christ and his slaying of the serpent, or Satan. Um, you know, that really is what makes these stories so powerful is that they take elements of the true story of Jesus Christ and, and make that, you know, they build that into their fictional narrative. But the story of Jesus's victory over Satan is, you know, not only is it true, but it's far more exciting and far better of a story than any of the ones that have been, or that any man has come up with any of these fictional stories that we could think of. Think about it, you know, the hero of the story, Jesus Christ, is so much greater of a hero than any, you know, fictional hero that we could think of in his righteousness and his perfection and his wisdom. He's far greater than any hero. The villain, Satan, is far more evil than any villain that man could dream up. And then the stakes of the story are so much higher than the stakes of any, you know, uh, dragon slaying story that we could think of. The stakes are literally eternal life 
for his people or eternal damnation and torment. The stakes don't get any higher than what we have in the story of Jesus' victory over Satan. And then, certainly, where do we fit in? Well, we're the ones needing to be saved. And there's never been an example of a people less deserving of being saved. And there's never been a greater example of a sacrifice being made by a hero on their behalf in order to save them. There's never been any example greater than Christ's laying down of his life on the cross for his people. And so for all of these reasons, the story that we see in Scripture, the true story of Jesus and his victory over Satan, his battle against evil and ultimate victory, is far more exciting and far greater than anything we find in any other book that we could pick up off the shelves of the library, for example. And so that's what's really made this study, for me, really enjoyable, uh, is just remembering that and and really thinking upon that. Um, So, you know, with that said, as we've talked about in the first couple of chapters, Nasalee has, you know, given us sort of that introduction to the story. Um, He's talked about, you know, starting out in Genesis chapter 3, the first instance where we see the serpent um, you know, the first chapter of the book was focused on what are all the, the things that the serpent was doing in the Garden of Eden. And then in the second chapter that Pastor Fry covered last week, he talked about uh, examples of serpents between the Bible's bookends. So we saw some examples where serpents represented good, and then many more examples where the serpent is used to represent evil. Today, what we'll cover in chapter 3, as you can see from the title, it's called Snakes and Dragons Between the Bible's Bookends, Part 2. So it's sort of a continuation of tracing serpents through the Bible. But in this chapter, he's specifically looking at six examples of the offspring of the serpent. So he's really focusing in that, on that idea of the seed of the serpent, or the, the children of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. And he's tracing that through scripture so that we can have a better understanding of that. So as we turn to the chapter, we'll go back and uh, look at this, you know, um, we'll look at Genesis chapter 3 because that provides our foundational um, uh, passage of scripture on this whole topic of the serpent and the serpent slayer. This is really where it all starts. And so, again, we'll read uh, from Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Now, what we see in that passage are a number of different references. We see a reference to the serpent, who is Satan, and the woman, Eve, specifically, in Genesis chapter 3. Then we see a mention of offspring, or seed. So when we're talking through these, you know, discussions, you know, sometimes you see the word seed being used, sometimes it's offspring, sometimes it's children, but it's all referring to the same thing. Uh, but we see, you know, two different seeds. We see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then further, we see that 
uh, they will be at enmity with one another. The seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And then we also see that the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, while the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So we see all of those things here in this passage. And in our study, we've already established who the offspring of the seed of the serpent and the woman are, but we'll cover that just quickly here uh, to sort of reset ourselves for what's to come in the chapter. And so when we talk about the seed of the serpent, it can be understood in two different senses, really, in this, um, in this passage from Genesis. We know that ultimately, you know, the ultimate serpent and the ultimate seed of the serpent is Satan. And when we look at the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman is the promised seed, Jesus Christ. In a more general sense, though, we can also understand these to refer to, in the case of the seed of the serpent, those who do Satan's bidding by attacking and persecuting the seed of the woman. On the other hand, we can understand the seed of the woman to be God's people, God's elect, those who are in Christ. And so it helps to keep both of those in mind, that when we're talking about the offspring of the woman, offspring of uh, the serpent, that we're talking in an ultimate sense about Jesus Christ and Satan. We know that because ultimately at the cross, Satan bruises Jesus' heel. He delivers a non-fatal wound, whereas Jesus turns around and crushes Satan's head, delivers the fatal blow. But then at a general sense, we also understand that the seed of the woman refers to God's elect, God's people, and that the seed of the serpent, in a more general sense, also refers to uh, all of the, essentially everyone else, everyone else who's unregenerate, but more specifically those um, those who are involved in doing Satan's bidding by attacking the seed of the woman. They're doing what their father has done, right? And so before we jump into the examples that Nasalee's given us in the book, I just wanted to take uh, a short time to walk through uh, just an example from Scripture where we see these concepts uh, being raised. You know, we may feel it, that it could be a little bit harsh to call people children of Satan or children of the devil, but if we look in the Gospels, we actually see Jesus doing that himself. And so if you want to turn to John chapter 8, I'm, we'll read, uh, I've got it on the screen as well, um, but we'll read verses 39 through 47 just to give an example of where we see Jesus using uh, words that are consistent with what we're talking about from Genesis 3, children of God versus children of the devil, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. So we read there starting in, this is in John chapter 8, starting in verse 39. They answered him, this is the Pharisees uh, talking to Jesus, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you in the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So here in John, we see our Lord using the terms of children of God and children of the devil. And specifically, he is calling the Pharisees children of the devil because they are resisting God himself. They're at enmity with God, and they're also seeking to lead the people who Jesus is ministering to away from the truth of God that he is bringing to them. So not only are they in rebellion against God, but they're trying to keep others from following God. They are rightly referred to here as offspring of Satan or offspring of the serpent. Now, there are many other examples from Scripture that we could look at if time allowed. Um, I'm trying to uh, stay on schedule here, so we won't go through all of them. But you could think of things like uh, the epistle of 1 John, where in chapter 3, first, uh, John states that you know, he makes this distinction between the children of the devil and the children of God. And in particular, the point he's making is that uh, the children of the devil will, you know, they will not practice righteousness. They will continue to live lives characterized by unrepentant sin, as opposed to the children of God who uh, could be identified by their obedience to God, by the fact that they do repent of their sin. And John draws this distinction Um, essentially saying what Christ has said when he said, uh, you'll know them by their fruits. Uh, He's saying that you can identify whether people are children of Satan or children of God by their fruits. And he uses those categories. We could also think of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul reminds us that actually all believers used to be followers of Satan. Right? In Ephesians chapter 2, He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So even in that example, we see Paul using similar words children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air. And the scary part is that we were all once in that number. We all were once enemies of God, which again comes back to why this story of Jesus' deliverance of his people from their sin is so far greater than any story we've ever heard elsewhere because the people he's saving were the people who were actively warring against him. And he chose to save them anyway. All right, so 
with those examples before us, we look now at chapter 3 of the book, and as I mentioned, Nasalee gives us six specific examples that we can trace through Scripture of the seed of the serpent, or the offspring of the serpent. Uh, Those examples, I'll read them real quick, and then we'll walk through them. Those are Egypt and its Pharaoh, a dragon in the sea, is what he calls them, wicked leaders in Canaan and Moab, serpent heads to crush, the king of Babylon, he refers to as a sea monster, King Herod, a murderous dragon, Pharisees and Sadducees in the time of Jesus' ministry, a brood of vipers, and false teachers, which he's mostly looking in the New Testament uh, for those examples, and he refers to them as intruding snakes. Now, a couple of things before we go in there. One uh, thing to keep in mind is that sometimes we will actually see serpent language being used to describe these people, which really helps with making this connection, that they're the seed of the serpent. In other examples, we don't see them necessarily described as serpents or beasts you know, using that language, but the way that we're able to identify that they're the seed of the serpent is by their actions in persecuting the people of God, the seed of the woman. Another thing to note, and Pastor Fry's mentioned this multiple times, is that you know, Nasali points out that when we see the seed of the serpent uh, fighting against the seed of the woman, we see that you know, Satan and uh, those who are doing his bidding use two different strategies. One is to be a deceptive snake, deceiving, um, tricking people, leading them astray. And then the other is to take the form of a devouring dragon, assaulting and murdering the people of God. So the first example that we see in uh, the book is Egypt and its pharaoh. Nasalee mentions there in the book that one of the serpent strategies to fight the woman's offspring is to be a devouring dragon that murders babies. And we see multiple examples of this in Scripture, right? The first is Pharaoh, but we also see King Herod, when Jesus is born, murdering babies. We also see the dragon in Revelation attempting to murder the seed of the woman. And so this is, you know, not a not something that's limited to Pharaoh. We see it continually, and we even see it into our own day. Nasalee provides us with the the quote there from Exodus in chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, and verse 22 as well. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's no surprise that Satan uses this tactic of murdering babies. Like we've talked about in the past, when you go to the Old Testament, clearly Satan would have had the motivation to try to attack the seed of the woman in order to prevent that promised seed, Jesus Christ, from being born and ultimately crushing Satan's head. So in the Old Testament, Satan certainly had self-interest, self-preservation as a a motivator for him to attack the seed of the woman. But even throughout the Old Testament and continuing all the way to today, we can understand why Satan would want to murder babies and attack the seed of the woman. 
Satan hates God. He wants to make himself God. He's in rebellion against God. And so anyone who would bear God's image is also going to receive Satan's hatred. So, of course, he would want to attack the seed of the woman. This is a breathtaking act of evil on the part of Pharaoh. But as I mentioned, we see it throughout Scripture and other places. Then we see some examples here in Psalms and in Isaiah of uh, the Lord actually using language, uh, you know, serpent-type language or monster-type language to refer to Egypt and Pharaoh, who were persecuting God's people, Israel. So in Psalm 74, we see a reference to the Exodus from Egypt, where God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And uh, it refers to uh, Egypt as Leviathan, the great sea monster. In Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14, we read, Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Then in Isaiah, in chapter 51, we see Egypt... Um, uh, referred to as Rahab, which was a mythical sea monster according to Hebrew mythology. Isaiah uses that word to describe Egypt. He says there in verses 9 through 11, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. So we see there specifically serpent language being used to describe Egypt, which was a stand-in for the seed of the serpent, persecuting the seed of the woman, persecuting the people of God. We also see on other occasions Egypt referred to as essentially a toothless dragon. Nasali says, in the book, it was foolish for Israel to trust in Egypt instead of the Lord. God describes Egypt's help as worthless and empty, so he labels her Rahab who sits still in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7. Egypt was a toothless dragon, a useless ally. And so here we see Isaiah prophesying that because God's people were turning to Egypt for help against the persecution of their enemies, instead of turning to God for help, God tells them, Egypt is going to be useless to you. If you would have come to me, I would have helped you, but Egypt is not going to be of any help. And so he refers to Egypt specifically as Rahab, that great sea monster, who sits still, who does nothing. So let's read there in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Then in verses 6 and 7, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. 
So again, he uses that term Rahab. It's a serpent language. It's a sea monster. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, particularly uh, discouraging here to see what uh, God's people are doing because they're turning to the seed of the serpent for help, right? They're turning to their oppressor for help. And God is pointing out how uh, perverted and wicked this is. Then we see that uh, Egypt is referred to as a dragon in the streams or a dragon in the seas whenever uh, the Lord is um, revealing that Egypt is going to be overtaken by Babylon. Ultimately, they're going to be overthrown and destroyed. We read in Jeremiah 46.22, She, Egypt, makes a sound like a serpent gliding away. For her enemies, Babylon, march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. So we see there Egypt referred to as a serpent gliding away. This consistency in language is, is something to note. Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 3 and 4, uh, he says, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. Then in chapter 32, verses 2 through 4, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh king of Egypt and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with the host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet, and I will cast you on the ground. On the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. In addition to Egypt, we see that God crushes the head of his enemies. We see this theme brought out throughout uh, Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, we see this theme playing out. Uh, Nasli gives us a few examples, uh, such as from Numbers in chapter 24, verse 17, where Balaam is prophesying that God's people Israel, God you know, and Israel on his behalf, will crush the head of the wicked leaders of the nations around them. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. In Psalm 89, verse 23, we read, I will crush his, that's David's, foes before him and strike down those who hate him. We see this language of crushing, uh, defeating. Um, in Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter, or crush, depending on the translation you look at, kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, or will crush the head, over the wide earth. And then in Psalm 68, verse 21, But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. So again, we see this consistent theme of God crushing the head of his enemies. The same as what we'd seen, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. There's a few examples that Nasalee gives from uh, the wicked leaders in Canaan and Moab, which he refers to as serpent heads to be crushed. 
Um, Nasalie says there, the seed of the woman crushes the seed of the serpent. God saves his people by judging their enemies. So he gives the example of uh, Jael driving a peg into Sisera's temple. It's probably a story that most of us remember because it is so terrifying. Um, but Sisera is one of the top commanders, top of, uh, one of the top military commanders for the Canaanites who hated Yahweh and who persecuted Israel. And Jael, you know, as he's on the run, she invites him into her tent, you know, uh, tells him that she'll provide him protection. And then ultimately when he's sleeping, she takes the tent peg and drives it through his skull. And Nasali provides this as another example of the seed of the serpent, God's enemies being crushed, having their heads crushed by God's people, the seed of the woman. Um, we also see the example of Abimelech who murdered his 70 brothers in order to make himself king in Canaan. Uh, he was the son of Gideon. And we see there in Judges how his head is crushed by a millstone, right? In uh, chapter 9, verses 52 to 56, we read, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. So Abimelech might have been mistaken for the seed of the woman as part of God's people, but identified himself as the seed of the serpent by turning against and persecuting God's people. And so, ultimately, we see his head being crushed by this millstone. And a couple of other examples. Um, Saul strikes down Nahash and the Ammonites um, there in 1 Samuel. And we actually see the, the name Nahash means snake. So this is just another example of you know, the serpent being identified, we've got an example of, you know, King Nahash being named Snake, being evidently the seed of the serpent as he's uh, leading the Ammonites in persecuting the, um, the Israel, the people of God, and ultimately the people of God strike down the Ammonites. And then also David and Goliath. Now we see that... Uh, Goliath, you know, essentially represents or stands in as this great enemy of God's people. He insults the Lord their God and seeks to, um, to destroy them. And ultimately, David defeats him. And, of course, every, you know, child here probably knows the story. How did David defeat Goliath? He picked up a stone and, and slung it into Goliath's head, crushing his forehead, right, causing him to fall. So again, you know, these are just examples that I thought it was, you know, pretty neat how Nasali pulls these out and says, you know, we can see these examples. Ultimately, you identify these people as being the seed of the serpent because they're persecuting God's people. But you also do see oftentimes language that refers to serpents and monsters and beasts. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think Nasali is essentially saying it's not coincidental that you see that type of language being used. Another example is the king of Babylon, 
who's uh, described there in Jeremiah as a devouring beast, and his armies, which are described as serpents and adders. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses, or verse 34, we read, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. And then in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, talking about the armies of Babylon, it says, The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. Again, these people who God is using to punish Israel for their continued idolatry and rebellion against him, God refers to as serpents and adders who will bite and kill them. He refers to their king as a devouring beast who is devouring Judah. And then, as we talked about before, King Herod, obviously one of the great examples in Scripture of evil. The author refers to him here as a murderous dragon. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the story. Uh, you know, as you know, King Herod hears about this Christ child being born, um, he becomes very worried about this potential threat to his own rule there in the region. And so he sends the wise men out and asks them to go find the child and then, you know, report back to me. Let me know where he is. That way I can come and worship him, right? Of course, that's, that's why he wants to know where the child is. No, he's, he's looking to, to murder this child and uh, ultimately uh, is unable to do so, so he decides to murder many, many more. In Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we read, Now when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So there we see this two-part you know, strategy that we talked about before. Initially, Herod seeks to deceive by tricking the wise men into letting him know where the child is. That way he can come and murder the child. When that doesn't work, Herod switches strategies to that of the devouring dragon and murders the Jewish children in order to accomplish the same goal. But of course, in God's providence, as we know, he's unsuccessful. Then we have the example of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders in Jesus' time during his earthly ministry. Um, we see them referred to often as a brood of vipers. We see the same serpent-type language being used to, of these people who, as we talked about before, are in rebellion against God 
and are seeking to lead others away from God, lead them away from Jesus' teaching. Uh, and we also see that they use this strategy of deceiving and then devouring. Initially, they try to deceive or trick Jesus with a number of different questions that they throw at him. They try to trap him in his own words in order to discredit him before the people. Is one motivation they have. The other motivation is that they want to condemn him of blasphemy because they want to be able to execute him. And then eventually, we see that's indeed what they do, even though... They, they can't um, deceive Jesus. They still manage to kill him by crucifixion. And so uh, we read there in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, uh, this is John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So there we see John the Baptist referring to them as a brood of vipers, but also using that, that language of seed or offspring or children, right? They believe they're children of Abraham. And as Jesus would point out later, what we read you know, earlier um, in that passage uh, is that they are not the children of Abraham. They're children of the serpent. Um, Jesus himself uses the same term to refer to um, these leaders who are leading the people astray, leading them away from Jesus. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. That's in Matthew chapter 12 verses 33 and 34. In chapter 23, verses 29 through 33, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So there Jesus is making this connection. We see that they're the son, he you know, says, you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. You know, fill up the measure of your fathers. You are descendants in this line of the seed of the serpent who are making war against the seed of the woman. He calls them out specifically there. And then in the New Testament, obviously, we have many, many references to false teachers. And I don't think it's any mistake that in the New Testament epistles, we see so many mentions of false teachers. We in the church have to be continually on guard against false teaching because it is so prevalent and has been so prevalent throughout the history of the church. There are many who are of the seed of the serpent who would twist God's word, who would pervert the gospel of Jesus for their own ends, and we have to be on guard against that. We see many uh, mentions of this in the New Testament, uh, particularly in the epistles, um, of these false teachers. And Nasli, I believe, rightly here, identifies them as the seed of the serpent. They're attacking the seed of the woman by trying to lead them astray with false teachings and often leading them to worship men rather than Christ. But certainly 
leading them away from Christ and his gospel and, and often replacing that with a false and perverted gospel. But just a few examples. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, we read, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if we receive a different spirit from the, from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now that's a condemnation that Paul has of the Corinthians, of them putting up with these false teachers rather than rebuking them and running them off. And he uses, here Paul makes that exact connection. These people are deceiving God's people just in the same way that their father, the serpent, deceived Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He makes the same connection. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 15, we read, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We see in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, deception, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, we read, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we see here are just a few examples there, you know, many more where we see through the New Testament um, warnings against these false teachers, and even in Paul's case, a direct connection of those false teachers to their father, Satan, who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Paul points out that they are likewise trying to deceive the seed of the woman, identifying them as this seed of the serpent. So that's our lesson for today.